Good morning. Welcome. Glad that you're with us. If, if you're new with us this morning, I'm, I'm glad that you are here. We're grateful that you are here. Feel free to just check us out. Sometimes it takes a little while to figure out what a church is all about, so I want to encourage you to, to don't just give up on us this weekend if you're a little bit on the fence, but to come back a few times and just see what the Lord might have in store for you here. This morning, we're starting a new series called Strong Church. Do, do you all have one of these study guides in your hands? If you don't, Throw your hand up in the air, and Jeremy and Trevor are in the back, and they will just drop one off to you right now. They will bring one your way. Um, I'll talk about this in, in just a moment, but what this is is a text-based topical series on some essentials that we believe Jesus is inviting us to um, to grow into maturity as a church, to continue to grow into maturity as a church. Now, some of you are really like begging, itching for us to get back into the Gospel of Matthew. It is coming. We will be there uh, this summer beginning in June. So hold your horses. We have something in store uh, for you with that. But for now, uh, we are going to, uh, we're going to lean into strong church. Uh, I want to talk a bit about what it is and about why we are doing it now. Our, our vision as a church family is to saturate the inland Northwest and the nations with the good news of Jesus. That's who we are. That's what we want to be about. We want to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. And so our vision as a church, and it has been this, is to play our part. We realize that we cannot ourselves, this little community, saturate Post Falls. We can't saturate uh, Kootenai County. We cannot saturate the Inland Northwest all by ourselves, and certainly not the nations. We must partner with other churches and other movements to make disciples who make disciples. And so we want to, I'll just reiterate it again, we want to play our part in gospel saturation. And the way that we will chase this down is by making wholehearted disciples of Jesus, wholehearted is a key phrase there, wholehearted disciples of Jesus, who are faithfully making other wholehearted disciples of Jesus, who are teaching others to do it as well. And so I'm, I'm, I'm using this word we. We are about this. And the we that I'm referring to is you. It's every single person sitting in a chair, listening in this morning or online in the future. The we that we are referring to is you. It's us. It's me. Now, springtime is a, is a time of preparation. We know this. Farmers know this right? Landscapers know this. Gardeners know this. What do you do in the springtime? You prep the soil, right? We plant seeds. We prune. Jesus used these agricultural metaphors often in the Gospels and in his teaching because our hearts and our souls are like soils. They're like seeds. They're like trees. And so it's spring. We feel it a little bit. It's springtime. And so this spring, just like we did last spring, we want to prep you. We want to prep ourselves. We want to prep as a community for summertime in, in North Idaho, when winter feels like it has been six years which that's what it's feeling like to so many of us right now. Like the sun starts to peek out, that big glowing orb in the sky that so many of us have forgotten about this winter. It peeks out and all of a sudden like 
the world is our oyster and we start to move and we start to go and we spend time at the lake and in the woods and with our families and traveling and doing all the things and it's all good. We, we live for summer here in the inland Northwest. But our desire as a, church as a church community is even when all of this is going on that we do not detach as disciples that we do not detach from the real Jesus, that we do not just put our discipleship on pause for three months, go and get all the sun and all the water and all the you know, outdoors, and then come back in September exhausted, going like, I didn't even think about the Lord. I probably didn't even crack my Bible. Like I, no prayer life, this, all of those scenarios, I've lived that. And some of you have lived that, and it, that's actually far more exhausting. And so our desire is that we do not detach as disciples, but actually thrive as disciples. So we want to we guide you and us into more focused discipleship. We don't want to check out on our life with Christ. He's not an add-on. Jesus Christ is not bolt-on. He's not aftermarket. He is our life source. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. He is essential to our thriving. So we have an ask for you that's not really a big ask at all. It's actually baseline discipleship. Our desire for those who are part of our community, who are disciples of Jesus, is that you would take responsibility for your discipleship. That you would take responsibility for your discipleship and that you would make yourself a simple and clear and workable plan. Now, the moment I said plan, my spontaneous friends just checked out in the room. But we need a plan, and not having a plan is actually a plan, and it's not a very good plan, if you ask me, when it comes to our discipleship. So what we're asking is that you would, would identify some next steps for you that you sense the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, and the Father are inviting you to take and to pursue for the sake of your own maturity and for the sake of Jesus's kingdom. To take a next step, to identify what is Jesus inviting me to is huge in the life of a disciple. So we've got these, uh, these study guides. What did I do with mine? It, it's right here. So I just want to, I want to take a moment and I want to just orient you to these study guides. All of these icons on the front are hand illustrated. We had a, an illustrator do this for us. They each represent one of the weeks that we will be in. And you can go through this study guide and discover what each of those are and what they represent. But right in the opening, I just want to encourage you, maybe not right now, but, uh, but later today, I want you to read the introduction. I want you to consider the introduction and, and who it is that it comes from. And then every week you'll see week one, week two, week three, week four, all the way through week nine. You'll see the title for that week and you'll see the text or the, the Bible texts for that week. And then you'll see four bullet points here. And the first two are a pair, and the, and the last two, three and four, are a pair. The first pair, if you just look at, at week one, this is a question that I, I want you, Trevor, Dave, Larry, we want you, your elders, we want you to be asking yourself these questions and, and answering them thoughtfully. Why is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, essential for your discipleship to Jesus? So the first two questions are about the individual, and the second two questions are about the community that we are a part of. So we want to ask you in the positive 
positive. Why is the gospel necessary for your discipleship to Jesus? And then that second question relating to you personally is, is how does the absence or why does the absence of the gospel actually, how is it a, a threat to your discipleship? So we're asking the questions in the positive and then also in the negative so that we can discover some things that we might otherwise miss. And then the third question, this is about our community. Why is the centrality of the gospel, why is it essential in order for your church community, whether it's all of life or another church that you belong to if you're visiting with us this morning, why is the gospel essential for your church community to thrive? And then the flip side is, how, how or why does the absence of the gospel actually uh, threaten or weaken your church community? And then at the very bottom, you'll see three letters there, PDP. This is an acronym uh, for Personal Discipleship Plan. So at the bottom of every single page, we're pointing you to the back here on page 24. If you just thumb your way to page 24, you'll see Personal Discipleship Plan in the back. You'll see uh, uh, an explanation of what is a personal discipleship plan and then some helpful mindsets and tips as you think through this. And then if you turn the page you'll see Jesus live as disciples and you'll see resources on one side. The next page is community. You'll see some resources going along with that. And then the last page is mission. You'll see some pages that go along with that. So really the left page of, of Jesus, community, and mission, these are the three buckets that our church organizes herself around. Gospel, community, mission. Rinse and repeat. Gospel, community, mission. We want to keep the gospel of Jesus central. We want to live together in life-changing community. And we want to be on mission to people to bring other people into the beauty and the goodness of what we have discovered, which is the real Jesus, our creator, and the ones who our souls are made for. So, we're each week, I just want to prep you that we're going to be walking you through some of these questions in the PDP in the back and, and just asking, giving you a little bit of space um, to interact with them right here in our gathering, give you some space to potentially discuss them with the people in your row or the people around you. So it might feel a little bit weird, but I want to, or abnormal to how we typically gather. But I do want to say this, I want to, I want to just urge you, please don't shy away from the awkward, but rather open your hands up to what Jesus might be inviting you toward. And in discussing some of those things with the people around you, he might actually give you some thoughts through them that you didn't ordinarily have for yourself that might open up a whole world of possibility and outcome and hope in your life with Christ. So I want you to be just tucking these in your Bible. They are a bit of a roadmap uh, for where we're going in the coming weeks, but also uh, history to just show us where we've been and what the real Jesus has been doing in our lives. So that is the study guide and the PDP. Um, let's move into this first text, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for our faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you know how old you are today? As of today, I am 16,324 days old. 
I am 16,324 days old, and I cannot recall even a single one of those days where I doubted if the sun would rise. I love the sun. I just don't really think about the sun often. I'm not questioning whether or not the sun is going to come up. And so every day of my life, pretty much, I wake up and I take for granted the physical center of my own physical world. Except when it's April 2023 and still feels like winter is here. What about you? When was the last time that you woke up in the morning and you wondered, I wonder if the sun is going to come up today? We just, we, we expect that the sun will come up. Uh, the, the sun, I've been just doing some study on the sun, our physical sun, the glowing orb that we've all forgotten about in the sky. It's, it's absolutely amazing. It would, it would take, um, it's the largest object in our solar system. Our solar system is called our solar system because the sun is in the center of it. Uh, it would take 1.3 million Earths to fill up the volume of the sun. This flaming ball of gas and flame in the universe is absolutely amazing. Um, its gravity actually holds our solar system together and holds the planets and the dwarf planets and all of the debris in our system. It holds it in rotation, in orbit around the sun. Scientists believe that the core of the sun is the hottest part of the sun and that it, this blows my mind, that it is about 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. you like, do you have a category for 27 million degrees Fahrenheit? I have no category for that kind of heat. Um, its activity from, uh, the, the, from its incredibly powerful eruptions, there are eruptions happening on the surface of the sun to this steady stream of these charged particles that it's sending out regularly uh, into, uh, into space. It influences, the sun itself influences the nature of space and everything in our solar system. And the sun is incredible, and it is amazingly powerful, but the Bible never describes the sun as the most physically powerful thing in our universe. It doesn't do it. It never describes the sun as the power of God. There is something that the Bible does call the power of God, though. Paul says, he writes to this Roman church, he says, I'm eager to come and to preach this gospel to you who are in Rome. And he says, I'm not, you're Christians already, but I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I know you're suffering, we're suffering because of this gospel. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Purpose clause, the word for. Not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God. And it's the power of God for salvation to uh, unify and to reconcile humans to a holy God. The gospel is the power of God to reconcile unworthy people to our worthy God. Paul is explicitly calling the gospel the power of God. That's a definite article, not a power of God, not one of the ways that God is powerful in our universe, but he's calling it the power of God. 
So if it's the sun that's the, 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 the power center of our physical world, then it's the gospel that's the power center of God's design and actually his purposes in the world. Gospel is this Roman word that means good news. Um, in the first century, this word predated Christians. The Romans were using this word gospel frequently, but Christians stole it from the Romans and reappropriated it to Jesus. Uh, it's the word evangelion. And, uh, and, and what it means is good news. It's where we get our words evangelism or evangelistic or evangelize or evangelical. Evangelicals used to be known not as a political voting block, but we used to be known as people who were all about the good news of Jesus Christ and its proclamation in the world. Evangelical is a troubling word right now in our culture. We should not jettison it. We should reclaim it. Gospel for the Romans was, was, it was applied to any event of such significance that it changed the course of history for those to whom it was proclaimed. So the birth of Caesar was good news to the people of Rome. The reason the birth of Caesar was uh, good news to the people of Rome was because his birth uh, announced this heralding in this period, this new era of peace and of prosperity. Uh, they regarded, the Romans regarded Caesar as a god and not a man. And so they looked to the Caesar or the Caesars to produce prosperity for them and safety and, and all that came with Roman conquest. But the Christians, they took this culturally potent known word and they reassigned it to the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. They're like, no, 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 Caesar. What's Caesar? Like, he's like, he's a government head. That's all he is. Jesus, he died. You saw him, rose from the dead on the third day, appeared to a period of more than 500 people at one time, appeared over the course of 40 days to a number of different apostles, lived with us, ate with us, taught us. We touched him. We saw his scars. It was him. You want good news? Good news is that death doesn't actually have the final say because God here has come, has lived in our place, has been killed before our eyes, but isn't dead. And like the text on Easter last week, he is alive actually forevermore. Death no longer has any dominion over him. So they take this word from the Romans, they reappropriate it to Jesus, and they were asserting, as we assert today, that the, that the, the gospel of Jesus is the power of God. The life-transforming power of reality of Jesus and so when you and I, when we receive Jesus, he doesn't just come into our old hearts to rearrange some things. That's not what happens when a person believes Jesus. When you and I receive Christ, when we believe that he's God, that he's risen from the dead, that he is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, he means to come into your old heart and my old heart and put it to death and recreate something entirely new in its place, to give us a new heart. He comes to give us a new reality. He wants to shake up and improve everything within us, our values, 
our ethics, our desires, our emotional maturity and health, our patterns of relating to the people around us. He means to come in internally and help us to deal with our fears, our hopes, our entire life, and our entire future. It's a complete reorientation and transformation that he wants to do within those who believe him and trust him. Back to what Romans 1.16 calls the power of God. Did you know that in the New Testament, when it refers to power, it only calls two things the power of God? Only. In your New Testaments, only two things are called the power of God. Number one, the gospel is called the power of God. And number two, Jesus himself is called the power of God. The power of this gospel is extraordinary, according to the Bible. It's more powerful than the actual sun in the sky. The sun cannot change how you and I relate to God. The sun cannot reconcile us to a holy God. The sun cannot give us life beyond a hundred years. Only the Son of God can reconcile us. Only he is the one who can give us eternal life. Only he is the one who can actually come in and reorient us from the inside. The Son cannot change you, but the Son of God can. The power of God is mentioned 12 times in 11 verses in the New Testament. Uh, Of those 12 times, nine times, the power of God, this phrase is mentioned in your New Testament, it refers to something that the power, the gospel, the power of God does. However, there are three times in our New Testaments, three significant verses, all in our New Testaments, all from the, the Apostle Paul here. The Apostle Paul is actually developing a theology of the gospel for new Christians. He's spending time with Christ. Christ is giving the Apostle Paul revelation. And the Apostle Paul is writing letters to the Romans like Romans. Just saying, like, we have no idea how big and how wonderful and how powerful this gospel really is. Three times in our New Testaments, the Apostle Paul defines what the power of God actually is. We know the first one, Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Paul writes again uh, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says this, he says, the word, right in the entry to 1 Corinthians, for the word of, God, for the, word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it, the word of the cross, is the definite article, power of God. So what's the power of God? According to Paul in this text, it's the word of the cross. The word of the cross is slang for the gospel. It's the word of the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. His mediating, sin-killing, reconciling, righteousness-giving work on the cross. One more time, just a few verses later, Paul calls something the power of God in 1 Corinthians 21-22. He says this, he says, for Jews demand signs. Jews want us to show them the power of Messiah. And Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks want us to show them our intellect. But we apostles, we preach Christ crucified. And this Christ crucified is actually a stumbling block to the Jews How could Christ crucified be your Messiah? Anybody who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. Jesus was hung on a tree. Jews would say, how can he possibly be Messiah? 
It's a stumbling block to the Jews and their theological system, and it's folly to the Gentiles. Are you kidding me? Your God's dead? We killed him on one of our crosses. But to those who are called by God, both Jews and Greeks, Paul says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Greek doesn't have the word is. Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. So we have the work of Jesus, the gospel, the word of the cross, and we have Jesus himself in our New Testaments being called the power of God. So as magnificent as they are, the sun and roaring oceans and devastating earthquakes and human ingenuity and a mother's love and quasars and elephants and polar bears and gray whales and category five hurricanes are never called the power of God. But it's this gospel that's called the power of God. And it's this gospel that creates the church. Have you ever thought about this? What creates the church? It's the word of the cross. It's the word of the gospel that God uses to bring the objective history, the story, the news of the real Jesus comes to our ears. We believe into our hearts. He makes us new and begins to renew us internally. This gospel draws the people of God, all, draws all of the undeserving together. All these people who by faith trust are being renewed to reflect the character of their creator. It's this gospel that puts us all on the path of becoming more and more like Christ. It's this gospel that unifies us. It's this gospel that empowers us with the very spirit of God who dwells within us and who then seals us for the day of redemption, making us forever children of God. Here's a question. Are you a child of God? Are you a child of God? If you're not, you've got to get in on this. You've got to genuinely explore the claims of the real Jesus because he has changed everything for me. And he's changed everything for a multitude of people in this room. Without the gospel, there is no church. There's no church without the gospel. And without the church, how will all of those, how will this news of all that Jesus is and who he is and what he's done, how will it go out? Because Paul will tell us later in Romans chapter 10, it's by faith, because faith, it actually comes by us hearing the word of the gospel and we hear the word of Christ and believe. And so as people entrust themselves to Jesus, what happens to them is they become disciples. Disciples are these people who are in this ongoing process of transformation, beginning with their initial faith that continues on and on and on with these ongoing decisions of faith as they continue to say yes to their next step with Jesus. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew and then to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness, the the beauty, the holiness, the godhood of God 
is revealed from our initial saving faith for our ongoing faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So as disciples circle up and and gather, what they gather around is the gospel. We keep this word of the cross. It's folly to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles or stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. We keep it central. But as disciples gather around this gospel, what happens is they become these gospel communities. They become these people who are orbiting around this good news, like our solar system orbits around the sun. They're, they're, they're clusters of disciples who are circled up around Jesus. And then some of these clusters, they grow into churches who organize themselves according to the scriptures. John Calvin, a theologian in the um, 17th century, in the 1600s, he said, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments, that is baptism and communion, administered according to Christ's institution, meaning he is the one who told us to observe these things, there, he writes, it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. Timothy Keller, a theologian in our own day, he writes this. He says, the church, what is the church? The church is a community of people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in obedience to Scripture. Notice that language. They organize under qualified leadership. They gather regularly for preaching and worship. They observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and they scatter to to fulfill the great commandment, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the great commission, go into all the world and make disciples. They do this as missionaries to the world for the glory of God and for their own joy. So what differentiates then groups of disciples from churches of disciples? What differentiates them is that the word of God is regularly proclaimed among them. Baptism and communion are regularly practiced among them. Trustworthy and competent leaders are installed to guide them. And the community together intentionally pursues holiness and unity and the great commandment and the great commission together. Now, to be sure, there are churches, many of them, where the gospel is weak or is relegated to the margins. These are still churches, they're real churches, but what remains is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, actually, it needs to be properly located or relocated in the center of this church's life together in order for those churches to live into their God-given purpose. Jesus has really, really strong words for wayward churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He'll say to the Ephesian church right out of the gates, you've forgotten your first love. He's referring to himself. He's referring to God. Return again to your first love. The gospel, the reality of Jesus, the word of the cross must be central. Now, maybe you've been a part of uh, churches where something or someone other than the gospel was really at the functional center, right? It's it, like uh, they may have the words, it's all about Jesus on the walls or on the websites, but in reality, something or someone else actually lives in the center of that church's community life together. What happens when a leader is in the center? 
of the church that you belong to? What happens when the leader moves on? What happens when the the personality in the center fails spectacularly? What happens to those communities? Oftentimes, they suffer incredibly. Sometimes they collapse entirely. What happens when we prioritize our friendships or our community, our connections? What happens when we prioritize those things over the gospel itself? It becomes all about hanging with your people and you, and you lose the, the power of God in the center of your church community. What happens when it's all about the music? When it's all about the worship experience? It's all about the production. It's all about the vibe and the feel in a community. What happens when it's about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a community? Some of you have been part of these churches. You get a little crazy at times. The gifts of the Spirit are wonderful. It's not the power of God, though. The power of God is the gospel. It's what unifies and anchors the church. Have you ever been to a church where you had to keep the rules? And that really was the functional center? So a moralistic, or sometimes we use the language legalistic church, where like you got to look a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way, otherwise you're on the margins? What happens when it's the Bible that's the center of the church? The Bible's good, right? We love the Bible. The Bible isn't actually the center of a church's life together. The scriptures are the guide for a church's life together, but the gospel, the person and reality of Jesus Christ, is the center of a church's life together. Jesus would rebuke the Pharisees in uh, the Gospel of John, He's tangling with these Pharisees. Nobody gets the Bible better than the Pharisees do. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you've got eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me, he says, that you may have life. We love the Scriptures. The Scriptures guide. They're they're our rule and authority for how we gather together, 100%, 1,000%. But Jesus is the center because the scriptures are pointing to him. Old Testament points to him. New Testament confirms him. Jesus' church is called Jesus' church because Jesus' church means, is meant to orbit around Jesus Christ. Have you considered this? There is no other group of people in the world like the church. Have you ever considered this? There's no other organized group of people in the entire world like the church. No other groups of people anywhere who have been around for over 2,000 years have no central location, but live as citizens of one kingdom under the loving rule of one father, one redeemer, one indwelling, heart-transforming spirit. They share one baptism, one common table of communion, and one mission to replicate Jesus's character and its members and to bring others into the same reality. Nothing else like church in all of creation. The Walt Disney Company, they call their, uh, their, their employees cast members and they call everybody, they're, they're a family. That's what they call themselves. Starbucks, they call their partners a family. The Ritz-Carlton, Southwest Airlines, they call what they have, their organization, a family. And I get what they're trying to communicate, but these companies, they're not actually families. 
They're not actually families. They're groups of people who may love and serve one another, sure, but are the members truly siblings in an eternal family with one true Father, one Savior, one Lord, one Holy Spirit? Not at all, because the family fuzzies end when the employment ends. R.C. Sproul says this about the church. He says, the church is not a human organization, but it's actually a divine organism. It's the body of Christ. That's what the church is. The body of Christ made up of all those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, making them family, new birth. As such, it is unique in all the world, for the church is the only entity that has been given the power and authority to represent Christ on earth. The only one. There's not another one. See, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're not a mere churchgoer. You're not a mere religious person. Rather, we are apprentices of Jesus and we are ambassadors for Jesus. We have the most privileged role description on the planet. Alistair McGrath, he's an Anglican priest. He's an Irishman. He says, a disciple is someone who has been called by God to follow Jesus and who responds to that call with faith and obedience. This involves a lifelong process of transformation as the disciple is conformed more and more to the image of Christ. You see this language. A disciple is one who is conformed. They've been transformed, are being transformed, and continue to be transformed or conformed more and more and more to the image of Christ. Churches are made up of all kinds of different people, and not all of the people in a church are disciples, and not all disciples are in the same place in their process, in their apprenticeship to Jesus. So according to Alistair McGrath, and I agree with him, a disciple of Jesus is somebody who has been transformed through believing the gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit and now is being conformed more and more to the image or the character of Jesus Christ like an apprentice who is being more and more, becoming more and more like the master who they're learning from and imitating. If that's a disciple, we know that there are different seasons of life and stages of growth for disciples. Some disciples are just starting out, just like just on your way. Some have been going a little while. Some are well down the road. I want you to be honest. Where are you? Be honest about where you really are in your process of discipleship. Am I a disciple of Jesus? This is a question to ask yourself. And, and if so, what stage? Even think through like a personhood. Am I in infancy? Am I a toddler? Elementary? Young adult? Adult? Parent? Grandparent, where am I kind of in my honest assessment of my discipleship to Jesus? And then where do I want to be? What's the, what's the like next stage of growth for me? Because every single one of us has a next step. If I ask you, are you a Christian? I'm using different language now. If I ask you, if you are a Christian, you could say yes and still not necessarily be a disciple of Jesus. You could also be both. All disciples are Christians, but not all who call themselves Christians are disciples. And here is a distinguishing line to just think through. Christians may be looking toward Jesus, learning from Jesus, going along with Jesus, but not necessarily being transformed by Jesus. There are a lot of people in the world who say they follow Jesus and their life and their character and their words, their conduct look nothing like him. And they actually shame and sully his name. 
by their claim to be a Christians, yet with a life that looks nothing like him. So here's a question. Are you merely associating yourself with him? Kind of hanging on. It's easy to like hang around a church, get the language a little bit, like do the things. Are you merely associating yourself with Jesus or are you a disciple of Jesus? Can you answer that question with clarity? Can you answer it with conviction? Yeah. Of course I'm a disciple. Here's what he's done. Here's what he's doing. Here's what I'm looking to him for. And, and, and some of you earnestly love him and you are, you've been changed by him, but you just, you just got a tiny little track record of the transformation. Yes and amen, because that's exactly where I started to. And that's where exactly where every single person who is a disciple of Jesus started to. Little babies and poopy diapers. It's just who we are in the early stages of our discipleship. So be on guard with that voice of condemnation in your own soul. And be on guard against, we have an enemy, an enemy's voice who's heaping accusation on you right now. You're not a disciple. You're just a Christian. No, no, I love the Lord. I believe him. And he's inviting me into something and I'm putting him off. So my work is repentance. My work is to change my mind about what he's calling me into and to follow him with wholehearted obedience. What's your next step? What's your next step? I want to speak to others in the room. Um, others in the room may not consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus. You may not consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus. You're, you're here to learn more about him. You're here to explore Christianity and his claims. You are deconstructing. You're trying to lose some of the heavy baggage and the damage that you've experienced in your Christian life. I want you to know this. You are so welcome with us. Hang out as long as it takes to figure it out, to ask the, the honest questions, the questions that make you flinch a little bit. Like, will I be put out if I ask that question? Are they going to like turn their backs on me if I ask that question because it seems a little harsh? We, we, we pray for you regularly. I pray for you regularly. We pray that you will encounter the real Jesus in fresh ways and come to believe him and to know him and to obey him come to experience the transformation that comes through Christ. The best way to pursue discipleship and maturity in Christ as his disciple is through his church. It's through his community of people circled up around the gospel. And his church is the most special, spectacular, beautiful, powerful, diverse organization of people in the entire world. Where else does God himself dwell? But with and in his people. He is among us. So ask yourself, am I a disciple of Jesus? And if you want a place to interact with that question, on page 24, the very first question in the personal discipleship plan under the heading Jesus is the question, am I a disciple? And there's some boxes there. Yes? No? I'm not sure is one of the boxes. If you want to talk, I would love to do that. I'd love to spend time with you and resource you. Trevor would, Dave would, Larry would, the person who brought you here probably would. None of us have all of the answers. All of us have some of the answers. And we would love to disciple you. We would love to help you.
Pray with me. Father, would you, by your spirit, help us to distinguish where we are in our life with you? As simple as that, honor your people, honor your name by revealing to us next steps for growth in your kingdom as one of your citizens, one of your sons and daughters. And for those who are on the fence about who you are, Jesus, confirm to them your reality and bring people to them who will help them. In Jesus' name, we pray with faith. Amen.